The year was 1940. The place, Dunkirk, France. World War II would not conclude until years later. Yet in 1940, the month of May, on the beaches of Dunkirk, a remarkable deliverance was to be accomplished. Allied troops, both British and French, were trapped on those French beaches at the mercy of German aerial attack. It's a terrible situation that looked hopeless. Over the course of several days going into the month of June, more than 300,000 troops were successfully evacuated across the water to England, much more than the 45,000 originally presumed to survive. This was in part thanks to the duo of over 1,000 boats, leisure boats, fishing boats, anything to get the Allied forces out of harm's way. In 2017, Christopher Nolan made that incredible event into a movie. I know some of you have seen it. I saw it recently. And as I I watched that film, I was struck by that feeling of angst, waiting, expectancy, anxiety, this sort of waiting for something to happen that those soldiers must have lived with 24-7 until something happened. Something would happen eventually, but they didn't know what that was. Would it be a deliverance or would it be death? Would promised help arrive finally or would the enemy indeed have the last word? Waiting is never easy. Especially when there is a promise of deliverance out there, but that hasn't come yet. In that case, waiting can often devolve into misery or even despair. When will it come? Will it ever come? Church, one of the themes of the entire Bible is one of waiting. See, God is a God who makes promises and commits to keep them, but on his timetable, not ours. And so there was often a whole lot of waiting in the Bible. The Allied forces may have waited for deliverance at Dunkirk, but as we return as a church to the Gospel of Luke this morning, we see another people awaiting another deliverance. And it hasn't come yet. The people of Israel, the people God had promised to send a Messiah, this king who would give them salvation, had waited for that day. They'd waited not mere days like the Allied forces at Dunkirk. They'd waited hundreds of years. Generations had passed off the waiting to the next generation and died without seeing it come. Would God ever make good on his promise to his people? Luke, the doctor historian, picks up his passage in the, in the, or picks up his story in the text Noah just read for us with yet another pregnancy announcement. So you might remember two weeks ago, we saw that first pregnancy announcement in chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, as Zechariah the priest gets gets shocked by this angel in the holy place of the temple, says that a baby will be born to him and to his barren wife, Elizabeth, that out of their seemingly hopeless situation, God would bring this man, this messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And now, in a parallel pregnancy announcement, But so much better, so much greater. In verses 26 to 38, we see Gabriel show up again. This time, not to a high-ranking priest, 
but to a lowly virgin. Not in the the big city of Jerusalem, but in the small no-name town of Nazareth. And this pregnancy announcement is the news Israel has been waiting for. So church, three things about this glorious passage and this glorious promise this morning. Three things specifically about the child to be born of the Virgin Mary, all right? First, he is the son of David. Second, he is the son of a virgin. And third, he is the son of God. David, virgin, God. So first, this child to be born of Mary will be the son of David. Look there in verse 26. Luke says it has now been about six months since verse 25, since that promise of a child to Zachariah and Elizabeth. So you'd imagine Elizabeth is about to make her, her entrance into society. Remember, she had waited for five months. Now she's gotten out. It's been about six months. The location has shifted now north, many miles north of Jerusalem to a small town in Galilee called Nazareth. Maybe about 500 people in the town. And the angel Gabriel is hard at work again. We, we met him back in verse 19 when he introduced himself as the one who stood in the presence of God. And now he has another announcement to make. And boy, is it a doozy. There in verse 27, he appears to Mary. Mary's a virgin. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph who comes in the, the family line of King David. Uh, betrothal, you might know, was, a, was different in that culture, significantly different from how we in, view engagement today. So at that time, betrothal was pretty much part of the marriage process. It was a legal act. It's kind of step one of two steps in marriage. If you wanted to break off betrothal, you needed a divorce. So Mary and Joseph had not come together in marriage yet, but they were legally headed in that direction. But now there's a wrench thrown into the works. Into this woman's life appears the angel Gabriel with a life-changing announcement. Look in verse 28. He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. It's a greeting with, with a sense of grace coming upon Mary. Not flowing from her, but given to her by God. And Mary is greatly troubled by that in verse 29. She's not not so much afraid of the angel himself, it seems, as she is concerned about the way he's greeted her. Why? I don't know about you, but I'd love an angel to show up and say, God loves you. His grace is coming upon you. Just wanted you to know that. She's concerned. She's troubled at the saying of the angel, writes Luke. Church, I I think she realizes God is singling her out for a specific purpose, and that unnerves her. God's grace is always wonderful, but not always comfortable. I love how one scholar writing about this passage speculates about Mary. And he says, she heard that God was with her and that she was an object of his grace. And then he says, what was God going to do to her? Right? What's next? But, Zach, but, uh, but Gabriel, in his kindness, like he did with Zechariah before, gives Mary reassurance in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. It's like you're saying, God knows what he's doing. I've got the right person. What's God's agenda then? Verse 31. 
Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We've read those verses many times if we've been in church for any amount of time around Christmas. But for Mary's ears, for Israel's ears in about, what is it, 3, 4 BC, Palestine, these words sound familiar. They're incredible. They echo God's covenant to David generations earlier, and they bellow out the wonderful news. The king is coming. The king is coming. The Messiah, the son of David, he's on his way. He's he's going to come. He's going to redeem God's people. The wait is over. Mary will bear a son named Jesus. A a name that means the Lord is salvation. Earlier, our brother Jack read for us from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God had made that covenant with David. And as we look, let me read a few verses of that again. Look there again in light of Gabriel's announcement in Luke 1. You can turn there if you want. Because as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 again, we see all the connections of Luke chapter 1. God tells David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Forever, kingdom, son, house, throne, forever. The words just ping off each other hundreds of years apart. This covenant, commonly called the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David and God, may have been partially Fulfilled through David's physical son, Solomon. Indeed it was. But eventually Solomon, David, Rehoboam, the kingdom deteriorated. There needed to be a better king. There needed to be a more powerful king. And Gabriel's words here are, that king's coming. He's coming. Here in Luke 1, Gabriel is using the same language of 2 Samuel 7 on purpose. He says this child to be born of Mary will be great, just like God had promised David, a great name. He says this child's kingdom will have no end, just like God had promised David, his kingdom would be established forever. This child will be called God's son, just like David's offspring would be to God a son. Jesus is coming, and he's coming as that son of David, the promised Messiah, the one who will come to rescue God's people, Israel. He will reign. He will reign eternally. There will be no term limits on his executive office. We'll sing at the end of our time together this morning that his wondrous rule will never end. The king's coming. The king is coming. Gabriel's words here ring deeply of Old Testament promises and they broadcast out the news that the Messiah is on his way. It's like, it's like those times when the President of the United States makes a, a public appearance and the band strikes up Hail to the Chief. 
It's kind of a, 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 a sign, an alert that the president is approaching the, the podium. He's about to, to come and to speak. Church Gabriel here announces the ultimate hail to the chief. Hail to the king. Hail to the eternal king. Make no mistake about it. He's on his way. He's approaching the podium. And amazingly, this king will come through a lowly virgin. That's our next point, church. This child will be the son of David. Next, this child will be son of a virgin. Look in verse 34. So Mary hears all this and she responds with a question. Um, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Zachariah had a similar question back in verse 18. Uh, if, if you'll remember, his heart had been full of unbelief in God's word. Here, however, Mary's question seems to come from a heart posture of trust. An honest belief that trusts God's word, but simply doesn't really know how it's going to work out. So Gabriel explains kindly in verse 35, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. The pregnancy begun in Mary's human womb will be of divine origin. She will remain a virgin pregnant with Israel's Messiah. And church, I think just back up here, I think it's helpful for us, especially for those of us who have kind of grown up hearing this. So if you haven't grown up hearing this, maybe you'll understand this better than we do, right? You'll understand the shock value of this better than we do. But for those of us who have heard this story many times, I think it's helpful to see Mary's question and her kind of wonder and and kind of bewilderment about how this will work. Because I I think we often hear and maybe even think that in our progressive day and age, we become scientifically smart enough and kind of have jettisoned kind of the, the, the weird mysticalities of the future of the past. And we just know that something like this obviously can't happen. So maybe it was added by the church later. Maybe it was just kind of added to, because the whole thing's a legend anyway, right? A virgin can bear a child just as easily as a human can survive without oxygen. It's just not scientifically possible. It doesn't work. Church, be encouraged if that's something you've asked. Mary asked the same thing. She thought this was crazy too. And yet she trusts. She asks the question, how? And God gives her the same answer he gives us. Because it's going to be my work. I'm the one who made the womb. I'm the one who created human life. This will be my work. That's how. I will work out the birth of this Savior in a way that seems impossible to you. Why? Why do it this way, God? Why do it in a way that just seems Hard to believe. Why do it in a way that could be a stumbling block to those who think more practically about life? Church, like we saw two weeks ago with Zechariah, God does this because he uses hopeless situations to bring about his saving work. He does this on purpose. 
And here he's not using just a difficult situation like he did with Zachariah and Elizabeth with, with barrenness. He's doing it in an impossible situation. Why? Because it's his work. And he wants us to know it's his work. One author writing about this passage says, Salvation must come in a way that only God can accomplish so that we will know that God has done it and so that he might get all the glory. That's why. That's what we see there in verse 37, right? Gabriel kindly tells Mary. I think it's so kind that he does this. Tells Mary that Elizabeth, a member of her extended family, is also miraculously pregnant. Kind of giving her a little bit of a case study and saying, like, this has already happened. God will do it for you, too, in an even grander way. And he offers her that wonderful, reassuring truth in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. It's not the first time an angel has said this or God has said this. It was actually God who said it in Genesis 18 to Abraham's wife, Sarah, when she doubted his power to give her a son in her old age. Back in Genesis 18, he had said, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. He can do whatever he wants. And church, lest we take this verse and use it to turn God into a glorified Tony Robbins, giving you a pep talk about your life, Let's remember that his view of impossibility and power is much grander than merely your life goals. He's saying that about the most cosmic, glorious sense possible. He's not saying this primarily about our life goals, but his eternal salvation goal. Let's not make God say less than what he's saying. He will save. He will do the impossible. He will do this. He will justly judge sin while justly saving sinners. He will do the impossible. Jesus has come to do this. Nothing is impossible with the God who takes on our greatest enemies of sin and death and hell and Satan and crushes them into the dust. God is the God who does that. God is the one who does the impossible. Church, it would do us well. It would do our souls well this week to meditate more often upon the power of God. Is anything too hard for him? Is saving your hard-hearted loved one who you've been praying for for decades too hard for him? Is growing the church in China amidst persecution too hard for him? Well, turning your dead, wilted heart into a throbbing, pounding heart that loves him wasn't too hard for him. With him, nothing is impossible. Christian, fill your mind with the power of this God and find rest for your anxious soul. This past week, I came across what has become one of my favorite quotes of all time. J.C. Ryle was, if he had a Twitter nowadays, he would, be, he would have the perfect tweetable sentences. 
Uh, he was an Anglican bishop in Liverpool in the 1800s. And on this text, he, he had, I was debating having like an 18-sentence quote here for you, but I spared you with one sentence. But it's all good. He, looks, he thinks about God's impossible power, how he can do what we think is impossible. And then he says this, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Omnipotence meaning his all-powerfulness. Ryle is saying, I think we can see from this text, that our trust in God never makes more sense. Our, Our hope in God never seems more true. Our rest in God never gives us more peace than we, when we are fully leaning our entire identity, the weight of our meaning on the power of our God. His child will be born of a virgin. That's how powerful God is. And so he will leave us no choice but to chalk up this salvation to his majestic power. Is assuring us. The church has another reason this child will be born in this miraculous way. And that's our final point this morning. The child will be the son of David. He'll be the son of a virgin. And finally, he'll be the son of God. So Jesus will be born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, he won't be just another boy or a child. It's going to be unique, different. He will be truly God and truly man. Look again in verse 35. Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, At this point in salvation history, Mary, perhaps all she's thinking about when he says son of God is that sort of sonship that was part of the Messiah promise in 2 Samuel 7. Remember that? He says, I will raise up a king and he will be a son to me. That didn't necessarily have divine overtones, right? It didn't necessarily mean he's going to be the second person of the Trinity. I don't know if Israel understood that at this point. So possibly Mary didn't think much beyond the fact that this is just going to be the Messiah. But we cannot mistake the fact that this means so much more as we continue reading in Luke's gospel. Jesus is not just the Messiah King. He is God in the flesh. The Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary's womb is bringing about something entirely new. The incarnation of God's own son. Church, this... this, This passage brings the Bible together and it gives me the chills. It's it's the climax, one of the climaxes in salvation history, in the story of the Bible. So think with me back to Genesis 1. All right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Right? Nothing. How does God create? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit brought life from nothing that first day as he hovered over the waters. 
And here in Luke 1, the same spirit is bringing about human life in miraculous form as if from nothing as he overshadows the waters of Mary's womb. The connection is unmistakable. A new creation is happening. The king is coming. Something new is on the way. You can think back to Exodus as well, the book we spent quite a while looking through and ended up this past spring, where God commands a tent to be made where he can dwell with his, his sinful people yet in holiness by way of sacrifice. And in that very last chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, the glorious presence of the Lord comes down upon the tabernacle and fills it. We read there, a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Church, that same thing is happening here in Luke 1. But it's not a tabernacle anymore. It's a person. The Spirit of the Lord overshadows Mary's womb like the glory of the Lord overshadowed the tabernacle. The Bible's coming all together here. The commentator James Edwards writes about this. The divine cloud that established God's presence in a place. He's talking about the tabernacle. Now establishes God's presence in a person. Bible is coming to a climax in the coming of the king. God's creative power is on display here in Luke 1, just like it was in Genesis 1. Recreating, bringing salvation, hope. He's bringing hope. He's bringing salvation to his people because he's giving us his son. Dear church, every other religion, every other faith system, has man striving to reach God. But here the gospel reveals a God who comes to us. Jesus will be truly God and truly man. And dear church, it had to be that way. Our faith indeed stands or falls on this truth. Because if Jesus was merely human with some crazy superpowers that made him look divine, then he would never have been able to be perfect and substitute himself for our sin. And on the other hand, if Jesus was divine, but kind of like put on the appearance of of a human, well, then he could never have died under the judgment of our sin, bearing it in his flesh on the cross. Church, praise him. Here is truth. Jesus came as both God and man. Truly divine and truly human. Two natures in one person. He came as the promised Messiah. Yes, he's all the hope Israel had waited for. The king is coming, but he has come to be something that most Israelites don't even fathom yet. He's come to be even more. He's come to be truly man and truly God so he can truly be the savior of the world. We read from the Heidelberg Catechism last week and and we've read this portion before in our services, but I want to read it again because the catechism in question and answer form just beautifully distills this truth for us. So the catechism writes, question, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for? Answer, 
one who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is one who is also true God. Question. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Answer. God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could never pay for others. Question. Why must the mediator also be true God, then? Answer. So that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question. Then who is this mediator? True God and at the same time a true and righteous human? Answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us to completely deliver us and make us right with God. Jesus is the son of David, the son of a virgin. He's the son of God. He's the coming king. Church, can you see the glory of this king that's coming to sit on the throne of his father, David? He has come not just to save his people from earthly oppression. He has come to save them from sin. Rule over them forever. Church, this is a helpful reminder for us. Jesus is not only your Savior, Christian. He is not only your friend. He is your king. You cannot trust in Christ, but choose not to follow him as your master. You cannot acknowledge Jesus as your savior, but not your ruler. You must respond to the kingship of this Lord Jesus Christ the same way Mary joyously responds there in verse 38 to God's word. So here's this amazing news that she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She trusts. She gives herself to him. That, that word servant is pretty weak translation. She's saying, I'm, the, I'm, I'm a slave. I'm a handmaid. The service of the king. Let it be according to your word, Lord. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so grateful you're here. It takes guts to come into a church service on a Sunday morning and hear these things. We're so grateful you're here. We don't take that lightly. But just so you know, the gospel is, can be phrased very easily in terms of kingship. The gospel shows us that when we talk about sin, that's actually a dethroning of God in our lives. It's resisting the kingship of our creator God, knocking him off the throne and taking our seat in his place, rebelling against him, deciding that we will have final authority. It's going to be up to us what's right for us and what's wrong for us. Because we're the kings of our own lives. And friends, that... That sin, that rebellion has gotten us into crazy mess because we're crazy bad kings. We screwed up 
over and over again. And so in our little kingdoms, we're constantly striving for the next best thing, for hope, desperately looking for meaning because we've divorced ourselves from the one who gives meaning. We deserve the good king's judgment for this rebellion. But there's good news end. There is good news. The king over all has become the servant of all. To take your sin on himself and die your death for you. Turn to that king. Run to him. Cede the throne of your heart back to him. Repent and bow down to him. Service to that king is full freedom. Service to your own kingdom is only slavery. Jesus will save you and give you rest for your souls. Repent of your rebellion against him and bow to his majesty. And dear brothers and sisters here at Loudoun Valley, I wonder, it's, it's easy for me, and so I'm sure for many of you, to fall into treating Jesus like Savior but not King. Fall into thinking of Jesus as kind of our get-out-of-hell-free card, who just is there for a pat on the back or a frantic prayer when we're going through some terrible situation but not the one who gets to rule and call the shots on every area of our lives. Remember, church, this morning who Jesus is. He's the king. He owns you. You belong to him. That's what you were made for. That's where you're going to find pleasure and joy. Live in a way that shows those around you that your God is the one who calls the shots in your life. Live in a way that says to the world around you what Mary said to God. Behold, I am his servant. Let it be, according to, let it be to me according to the will of the Lord. That's the mindset of a Christian. That's the mindset of a servant of the king. In church, like Corey read for us at the beginning of our service, that king's coming back. He's come once, the servant king. He's coming back, the triumphant king. And so, like we began thinking about this morning, you and I, church, as a family, just like Israel in 4 BC, we're in a season of waiting, aren't we? How long, O oh Lord? Will your promises come to fruition? Can we trust you? When's it going to happen? Is deliverance on its way? Church, it is. He will come in his own time. So may he return and find us serving him faithfully. Our kingdoms, our tiny little kingdoms, will have an end. His will never have an end. So whose kingdom will you serve? Let's pray. Our King, we do praise you. We confess that we like to hold pieces of our life for ourselves. 
Of course, there are places in our lives that we want to submit to you, but there are other places we're just not ready to do that. Forgive us. King Jesus, we bow before you. We worship you. Use us. We are your servants. Let it be to us according to your word. Make your name great through us. And King Jesus, we ask in humility and trembling, would you come back soon and take us home? We're ready. Amen.